Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. My guest today is Australian philosopher and translator Melissa McMahon, a specialist in French history who spoke at last year's Tom Brock Rugby League Reflections Conference on how amateurism was used to justify the Vichy government's ban on rugby league in World War II. Although I'm sure that pretty much everyone listening to this podcast will be aware that Rugby League was outlawed in France during the war, if not, take a listen to Rugby Reloaded episodes 7 and 49, but the full reasons have never been completely explored. As Melissa pointed out in her paper, the ban was not simply about rivalry between Union and League, but was part of a larger campaign to reassert amateur values in French sports and society. As we'll discuss today... Amateurism was not only about not playing for money, but represented a distinct worldview. So, welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Thanks very much, Tony. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks very much for for coming along. So, French Rugby League began in 1934, and by 1939 it was strong enough to challenge Rugby Union. But in 1941, it found itself banned by the Vichy government. Can you explain exactly what the Vichy government was and what its intentions were towards Rugby League as a sport? Okay, well, the Vichy government was uh, the government that was set up after the Nazi, uh, the Nazi Germans invaded France in 1940. Um, in the end, uh, France divided up into a northern occupied zone and a free zone in the south. Um, Vichy was the town in the south that the government set itself up in. Um, and it was set up by Maréchal Pétain, Marshal Pétain, who was a military man um, who kind of took the reins with a very militaristic um, view of how to run France um, and sort of started a, a kind of a national ideological program called the National Revolution, which was supposed to uh, sort of pull France back up on its feet after a period of, in his view, uh, sort of moral decadence and, and decay. Um, he almost thought that uh, France needed to go back to a pre-revolutionary um, sort of set of values, certainly a pre-modern set of values towards very traditional ruralist French state. And the, the south of France, uh, which was the free zone, is also, of course, rugby, French rugby heartland uh, down in the southwest. So really everything happened quite quickly in 1940 when uh, they came to power. Um, basically they wanted to use sport as a propaganda tool to uh, sort of set the moral and uh, physical fibre of France back on back on its feet. Um, this is actually quite a common response of uh, European governments to military defeats, to sort of roll out sporting programs after, after wars. Um, and that's partly because of um, perhaps, you know, feeling like the population is physically unfit, but also um, because of this amateurist idea that sport is a a tool for moral development and social development. Um, it's always been a very strong propaganda tool. Um, that image of the strong body is sort of a perfect representation of a strong state, a strong citizenry, a strong leadership. Um, so you can really project all sorts of abstract values onto the sporting um, body, which is still a very kind of concrete image. So you have um, it, it rolled out a major uh, sporting program, uh, integrating sport into the school curriculums, um, organising uh, these things called Chantier de la Jeunesse, which was a little bit like uh, the Nazi youth, um, sort of physical culture, paramilitary-type uh, parades. Um, and it, it sort of assumed state control over sport. Uh, very early on, it um, talked about banning professional sport. Uh, it... 
basically the government moved to sort of nationalise sport um, and the ban on professional sport was part of that. Um, so it needed to, if you like, um, Fiji wanted to ban professional sport because it saw it as detracting from the sort of true purpose of sport, which was as a moral and educational tool. That was its overt argument. It saw professional sport as a form of um, corruption, distraction from that aim. Um, it also thought that maybe young people would get uh, stars in their eyes at the idea of being a famous um, sports player and that wouldn't be good um, for them. Um, but it was also about, yeah, control, uh, controlling sport. Sport, of course, was an enormous, um, a very powerful cultural force um, by the mid uh, the mid 20th century, um, a lot of power over you know the hearts and minds of the general population. Um, it wanted to harness um, that power, and it needed uh, sport to be amateur in order to do that. Um, you need to be playing for values for the for the state to be able to. Um, project those values onto you. Um, if you're going to be uh, demonstrating great virtue on the field, uh, showing great skill, um, the state needs that to be to happen in the name of the state and not for you as an individual. Um, even for the state athletes, uh, the government asked the press or a particular minister asked the press, when you report on what the champions do, forget their name. Don't, don't focus on the individual, focus on their representation of the state. So it can't really use professional sport in that way. Um, you need to have, uh, but really for them, amateur sport is, is state sport. Um, so it's not like they tolerated amateur organisations um, all sporting associations had to be registered with the state and approved by the state. Um, One of yeah. the things I was going to ask is, um, I think it's interesting that amateur, amateurism was common in to all right-wing re regimes in Europe mm. in the 1930s. Yeah. And it's clear from, as you've explained it, that there's obviously a link between amateur philosophy and authoritarian at best governments. Um, so this isn't particularly unusual uh, for France, is it? it? It does seem to be that right. amateurism, wherever it is, uh, wherever it becomes an important factor, has some link uh, with right-wing governments. I mean, apartheid South Africa as well is, is another yeah. obvious example. Yeah. Do you think there are any I particular mean, reasons within amateurism for that? Uh, I think specifically with French amateurism... Uh, if we think of everything, um, all of our image of France and the French as being prison intellectuals sitting around in cafes, smoking, drinking, talking about philosophy, plotting revolution, that's exactly the image of the French citizen that both um, that Vichy wanted to get rid of and that um, Pierre de Coubertin wanted to get rid of, who was sort of the great instigator of um, amateurism and uh, one of the founders of the Olympic Games. Um, he saw he was mostly inspired by the English uh, school system, and what he saw there were, was people developing a natural sense of self-discipline and authority through playing sport. Um, and so he thought that that would make them better citizens when they left school. People, it would make them people with a more natural or organic understanding of authority. Um, and therefore less likely to be kind of disgruntled, the kind of classic disgruntled, rebellious um, French citizen. Um, 
I think you can be an amateurist without necessarily being authoritarian. De Coubertin was not actually a big fan of militaristic um, sort of physical culture, um, but, of course, the Olympic Games very much went in that direction. Um, and certainly by the time of the Vichy government, um, with, the, with the Olympic Games, you get the classic sort of parade, nationalistic parade that's very much in keeping with the kind of sport as a propaganda tool. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, there are plenty. The, the government prior to uh, Vichy, the, the Popular Front government, they were also heavy promoters of, of amateurism and not big fans of professionalism. Um, but they promoted sport in the name of having a kind of a pleasurable and healthy leisure activity. They wanted, you know, everyone to get out and have, you know, enjoy themselves in a healthy um, pastime. So it was a very different kind of political uh, agenda than uh, the Vichy government who, you know, actually had the, the saying, be strong to better serve. Um, so very much tied to the state. Um, and a, a lot more investment and a lot more investment in a different kind of sporting activity, um, such as um, sort of paramilitary physical culture. So I, I don't think you necessarily, I don't think amateurism is necessarily authoritarian, but I do think authority authoritarian governments need sport to be amateur in order to be able to use it as a tool. Um, it's almost as if, I mean, the classic distinction that we see uh, nowadays is that an amateur is someone who play, who doesn't play for money, doesn't receive money for playing sport, and the professional mm. is. But in a sense, in the, in the type of amateurism you're talking about, the question of payments is is not the central issue. It's more to no. do with a, uh, promoting a set of moral values that serve the state. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it's the idea that sport, it's not just something that can be a tool for personal development, but that it essentially is and it must be used for that and must exclusively be used for that. Um, I mean, we all know that you can sort of experience all the moral benefits of playing sport and still be a professional player. We, we see professional players everywhere demonstrating discipline, courage, sportsmanship, teamwork, all of those things. Um, in some ways, amateurism is much more of a, um, it's almost a romantic ideal. It doesn't, it, it's kind of like a little self-sufficient philosophy, sort of focused on higher higher values. There, there aren't many activities that we think of as inherently immoral if you do it for money. Um, I mean, really the only obvious analogue I can think of is, is sex, to be honest, yeah. where it's an activity where inherently to do it, it's something where it's somehow so much bound up with who we are as a human being and, and our relationship to others that somehow it's inherently immoral to be paid for it. And it's funny to think that under amateurist philosophy sport has assumed such a kind of weight and has such a moral weight and so bound up with human development that to do it for money is somehow inherently uh immoral and well, yeah, but I mean, that's the kind of investment that's the kind of sort of psychological investment that sport has under sort of an extreme well, in fact, yeah, and in fact, if you go back to the 19th century in England, then there were occasionally accusations that professional uh, players were mm. prostitutes. They were prostituting themselves. So they, that um, yeah. that crossover of, of morality um, mm. uh, is actually quite strong in that amateur way of thinking. 
Yeah, I mean, it's got to be something to do with the idea that you're performing, that it, that it's a, that you're using your body to perform on a stage. Um, I mean, you think of morality to do with, with theatre. Um, th- there's definitely something about a kind of prudery about performing physically in front of spectators. Um, and, and the presence of spectators was also almost as bad as the presence of money in sport. Um, and they go together, of course, if you're going to pay people you need ticket holders, um, ticket holders need a good show. It's a, a completely, that's a completely competing notion of what sport is as, an, as a spectacle, as, as an event where everybody goes along and enjoys themselves. That's completely the opposite to the sort of edifying display of, um, you know, of a state sporting event, of a state champion. Um, it's really not a very enjoyable activity uh, in some ways watching sport or playing sport under under Vichy, uh, however much amateurism is supposed to be about, um, you know, playing for pleasure. So what, where did rugby league come in this? Because it, it's, it's although there are obviously um, professional sport was banned, uh, so yeah. professional soccer, I, I don't think it actually was outlawed in the end, but it was, it, the, the Vichy government didn't want professional soccer and they wanted soccer to become amateur. But rugby yeah. league was different in that it was a it was the only sport that was actually banned and its organizations disbanded yeah. why why was rugby league the f- the focus of of so much of uh, of Vichy's attention right well rugby league had always had a lot of trouble um establishing itself as a distinct uh sport in france in in the sense of formalized as, as a federation it it applied to become a federation back in 1934 um the national committee of sports said no, because you're the same, you know, this is, there can't be two federations for the same sport because they just saw it as the same as rugby union. And so they referred to the question to the uh, rugby union federation who basically were, were in a bind because they wanted to say, no, this shouldn't have its own federation because it's basically the same as rugby union. Uh, on the other hand, we don't want them because it's completely different to rugby union. Um, and they just stalled on that decision. But when it came to the war, they were really able to push the moral argument against professionalism because there was that already that um, that groundwork, that anti-professionalist groundwork. Um, so they, they did make the same argument. Um, they said, no, it can't have its own federation um, because it's, you know, it's not really all that different. Um, professional rugby league, of course, that must go like every other professional sport. And then they had to look at amateur rugby league and they said, well, it's not an improvement on rugby union. So, um, and it maybe it's even inherently professional because you have to be very, very fit to pay, play rugby league. Um, plus it's more of a spectacle. It's obviously um, about spectacle, this this spectacles. I do mean not glasses, spectacle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the end, they, they retreated to the moral high ground. They said, whatever you want to say about rugby league, um, it's fundamentally impure because it's grounded in professionalism. Um, whatever you want to say about rugby union, because rugby union was rife with corruption at that time, it has the purity of its origins and, and therefore it should, you know, it should be the, the one and only rugby, um, rugby being played in France. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it suffered because it was very similar to rugby union, um, so it could easily be presented as not very different, particularly, I mean, even today, a lot of people find it very difficult to understand what the difference is and, and um, 
and, and how to recognise Yeah, and that's it. one of the problems. The, the, the game still has the same problem in yeah. some European countries where they just the, the government bodies just view it as a ver- variation of rugby union. And, uh, so it struggles for recognition uh, in, yeah. in some countries on the same basis as, as, as outlined in France. Um, w- yeah. The other interesting thing that is that a lot of the people who are involved in the sporting decisions of Vichy were actually also involved in rugby union itself. So there was a um, yeah. um, there was a conflict of interest, uh, to say the least, going on, and particularly yeah. uh, with um, uh, the report that was written on rugby league by Paul Vavanel. Um, can you say but, something about that? Yeah, well, Paul Flavnell, he was um, a former student rugby player and he became director of um, Stade Toulousain, which is uh, the Toulouse rugby team. Um, He was a doctor, he was a writer, um, and he was a passionate... His two passions were uh, rugby and serving the country in in conflict. Um, He himself was a doctor um, on the front during World War I, um, he had a monument erected to sportsmen who died during the First World War. Um, for him, uh, the, the fate of rugby union and France were intimately bound up together. So in, in both cases, you have to um, re- have a period of redemption after a period of division and corruption and dissidence. And so restoring the unity of rugby um, was for him almost the same as restoring the unity of France. So, uh, yes, absolutely, uh, an absolutely partisan um, uh, reporter. Uh, Yes, he was commissioned to basically tell the government, well, what should we do with rugby? Should there be one or two federations? Um, uh, How should we organise rugby in the future? And um, his answer was only one federation and not even amateur rugby league because we've really just got to you know, get back to basics. Rugby league is, yeah, inherently a sign of corruption, even if it's um, it, it's a symbol of professionalism, and, and that's the problem, even if it's not being played on a professional basis. And, of course, this is a time where symbols mean everything. You know, it, it's, a, it's a whole regime that's based on, based on symbols. So uh, just because of that, as you say, other sports, they could stay, they could just go amateur, they could survive by going amateur... And it should be said that the month before this report was submitted, uh, the Rugby League Federation had voted to become completely amateur. Um, but, yes, there, there were too many people high up. Um, Joseph Pascoe, who was the director of sport, um, and uh, under the, the big uh, education and sports commission that the government uh, set up, he was also a former um, rugby player. Um, all of the... Most of the people involved were came from the south and uh, had a kind of a pro rugby union um, prejudice. Um, unfortunately, I haven't had any luck finding out what the head of the rugby league federation, Massa Labod, what his he was also supposed to have submitted a report. Um, they, they all went into a meeting, and at the end of it, um, he actually agreed to form one federation and basically to presumably also to to phase out rugby league um and and wasn't you know was seen as a traitor basically to the game because of that um he might not have had much choice um but i can't yeah i I haven't been able to find his official kind of submission to that meeting it would be very interesting to see 
Um, but yes, Wavnell is very nasty about him. He's sort of in his report. He says, "Oh well, Laborde talks about elite athletes, but of course they're only muscular elite. It's the only it's only a muscular elite. It's not a moral elite." Um, so he's got a very high-handed tone. Um, it's fairly representative of the way rugby union um, people in the rugby union establishment talked about league. Um, yeah, there, there's no hiding the sort of um, disdain um, they had for the sport. And, and I guess, you know, the, the threat, because that's the other thing. Because it's so similar, it's a very direct danger. It's a direct competitor to rugby union for audiences, for players, um, for grounds. Um, and rugby union had done everything they could to um, make the life of rugby league very difficult, um, particularly when it came to playing grounds, um, basically telling grounds that they would boycott the ground if they allowed rugby league to be played there um, and so on. But, but yes, they were, they were on the decline and rugby league was on the rise. And, yeah, this was just a, a great opportunity um, for them to just eliminate the, the problem which they'd been sort of trying to for a long time. And I think um, it, it's often said that the, the by banning rugby league, it was part of v, the Vichy government's attempt basically to uh, outlaw the 1930s and the popular front era, that they mm. wanted to uh, reverse all the changes that had taken place in France basically in the interwar years and return it to a, uh, well, as you said earlier on, a, a top, a t- La France Profonde, the rural, mm. agricultural, very hierarchical France of pre-revolutionary, yeah. pre-1789 revolution, let alone uh, pre-1936 Popular Front. Um, mm. So there's a sense that they're they're te- they're definitely turning back the clock, and for uh, for reasons beyond its own control, rugby league was a victim of that. Yeah, well, because of course rugby league also represents um, well, as I was saying before, a kind of professionalism goes with communism, goes with um, spectacles. One of the demons that um, the Vichy government set up was capitalism, speculation, commercialism. These were sources of corruption. Um, they wanted to go back to a sort of very agricultural, very artisanal, very rural-based society. And, of course, you know, rugby league, again, represents, um, even though it was still mostly played in the rural southwest, um, simply the fact that it's a, a monetary um, venture, you know, a, a sporting event is, is a show. You have takings. You have, it, it's, it's a commercial venture in a way that amateur sport isn't supposed to be. Um, although, of course, the big problem with rugby union in France in the uh, 30s was um, false amateurism. Was was a lot of corruption in, in that respect. But, yeah, I mean, like I said, the Popular Front government, they were not big fans of professionalism either, but they would never have taken that very aggressive kind of nationalising measure. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm sure it was definitely part of a very traditionalist impulse the, the other thing that's interesting, I think, and I think this is true in a different way with amateurism in Britain as well, is that the the hostility to rugby league, it, it also appears to be based on the fact that um, rugby league, again, whether consciously or not, is it, seen as a challenge to hierarchy. It's a challenge to mm. deference and that it's not accepting that the people who run rugby union should be the people mm. who accept it. Now, by and large, rugby league didn't articulate that, but it's, it's the way that it's perceived by the mm. uh, by those who, the, the supporters of amateurism who run rugby. 
Yeah, well, look, that, that was definitely the case uh, on the part of the rugby league establishment. Um, there's a, a wonderful article by Louis Dudé, who was a former player. Yeah, was he sorry, a, he's a French international before the war, wasn't he? Yes, he played for France and he was vice president of the um, French Rugby Union Federation. Um, he wrote an article on amateurism, uh, rather on professionalism uh, and rugby league in 1936. And it's very clear uh, that he has a horror of the crowds, uh, like literally the masses, the sort of horrible, inert, incompetent crowds he talks about. Um, and he sort of thinks that popularisation has spoilt the kind of the private club nature of rugby union. Um, he literally says we used to be able to just kind of regulate our sport how we wanted to play it between ourselves. Um, now that's all been thrown open. Um, basically, all these horrible people have come along and, and ruined the whole the whole thing for us. Um, very yeah. clearly, uh, again, yeah, again, you get that in England as well. The, 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 yeah. um, there's a famous quote from the 1890s where it says, "Gentlemen, do not wish to be howled at by mobs in some Yorkshire Coliseum." So exactly yeah. the same, um, you know, fear of the masses in in a lot of ways. Well, I mean, he actually uses a Latin phrase, which I can't tell you the Latin, but the translation is, I loathe the crowds and avoid them. <laughs> and he says, this is the natural motto of the of the rugby yeah. union player. Um, it, all of this is very open. There's no reading between, you don't have to read between the lines with these things. Um, but that, I think that's the same as the argument of the Vichy regime. That definitely is present in the rugby establishment. Um, Vichy is, uh, they don't mind the masses because they want to, they want to play to the crowd. They want to attract the masses to themselves. Um, but certainly, uh, on the level of the establishment, um, and, and there's some of that in Boivnel as well. He, he says, oh, it started in an educational context. Yes, there was mingling of the classes, which was a great thing, which was, you know, fine, except it got too popular, too popular, too many crowds, uh, money, uh, all these sorts of things. So, um, yeah, there's a sense of the debasement of the game in uh, in rugby league coming along. It's it's very similar to people, uh, to amateur supporters uh, in England in the 1880s and the 1890s, the same. Mm. It's not just about money. It's fear of the crowds. It's fear of the debasement yes. of the game. It's losing the morality that they believe that that, sp- that sport should, has. Uh, should have. Uh, finally, because mm. I say we're running out of time. Um, yeah. D- 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 can you draw any general conclusions about what the events in Vichy can tell us about amateurism as a whole, about the nature of it? Yeah, look, I think, and we've already touched on this, um, I think once you have that idea that sport is a tool for personal uh, and social development, you need to look who has control of that tool and what are they using it for. Um, so there's always, I think, uh, something that you have to look at with that idea of sport as a tool. Um, yeah, who gets to use it and what are they using it for? Um, I think it tells us that professional sport is a rival uh, to the state, if you like, or a rival to government for um, attention, for enthusiasm, for simply eyes, eyes and ears, um, and that prof- uh, the government needs to be able to control that and to do that it, it has to amateurise uh, sport. Um, 
and partly not it, it presents professionalism as a kind of amorality, uh, an amoral uh, sphere. But I think maybe the greater problem is that professionalism is still a moral sphere, um, but just outside of the state. Um, you know, we talk about commercialism, uh, commercialism in professional sport and, you know, commodification. Um, but in, in, in this context, it's also about um, freedom, independence, um, personal emancipation, um, that contractual relationship between, you know, a player and a, uh, an employer can be a lot more equitable than one between a, a, a sort of a journeyman in a rugby club and, and their superiors. Um, so I think it gives us a bit of a different perspective on what the values of professional sport are and how they can be um, positive uh, values and that professional sport can, you know, is a threat in some ways because it can demonstrate all the virtues um, of the amateurist code. Excellent. Well, that's a, on, okay. a, on a fascinating point. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, uh, that was absolutely brilliant, really fascinating, and we'll um, we'll have to try and extend it uh, and, and do another uh, have another discussion about amateurs because I think there's a lot there to yeah. that could be explored in a broader okay. sense. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Reloaded podcast. If you want to follow Melissa on Twitter, her name is at Batsy Blog where she also writes about cricket, and her website is melissa-mcmahon.com. I'm at Collins Tony, and if you want to dig a bit deeper into the history of rugby and the other football codes, take a look at the Rugby Reloaded website at www.rugbyreloaded.com, where you can also wander through the complete archive of all past episodes of this podcast. Until next week, thanks for listening.